Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and we have a pretty special episode for you today. So I talked to Chris Schaberg a while back about his book, Searching for the Anthropocene, which contemplates how we write about and contend with human-driven catastrophes on a global scale. Since we last talked, the novel coronavirus has changed human life as we know it. It has become evident that the pandemic spread so drastically because of how interconnected the global economy is and because of how unprecedented human mobility has become. Chris, as an addendum to our previous conversation, I wanted to ask you how you're thinking about the virus, especially with regards to your book. Yeah, thanks for having me back on, Rebecca. Um, and I have indeed been thinking a lot about this. I've um, written a couple of pieces that have really followed up from the, the book uh, since it was published. I wrote an ode to empty airports that was at Slate um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, as I, as we first were seeing the the images, kind of haunting images of empty terminal buildings, and 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 they were kind of, people were kind of amused, like, oh, wow, that's weird, you know, empty airports. Who would have thought? But then then we had a um, kind of a slew of images and headlines about choked airports as people were rushing to get back home. Um, uh, that was just like maybe ten days ago, and now things are starting to quiet um, down again. And I'm actually writing a new piece right now, wondering about, you know, when when is flight actually going to be entirely paused for the for at least I mean, the U.S., other parts of the world are already doing that. Um, China certainly uh, locked down their flights early on um, to a large extent anyway. But uh, anyway, this is all sort of f um, following up on the end of, of the Anthropocene book where I was really floundering around about like what what could possibly um, put a limit on human aviation at the scale that it operates right now um, in a catastrophic way. And I had no idea that what, what might do that would be a global, you know, pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I read some statistic uh, a while back that China's carbon emissions have been reduced by a staggering 30% or something, just mm -hmm. because, you know, obviously for the last two months, not just in China, but around the world, as you said, uh, air travel has just been severely reduced to the point where the airline industry is now asking for bailouts um, to, to their respective governments. Um, one has to, I mean, obviously the thing that I've been thinking about is, is, is this what it took a pandemic to, to reduce human mobility, to get people to think about air travel in a different way. I mean, I also worry that after this is over, things like the airline industry are going to double down um, to sort of make up for yeah. lost profits during this time. And I and I I don't think environmentalists are particularly happy with this either. I don't think that they wanted they didn't want reduced airline travel because of a global crisis right you know I mean? right yeah no absolutely it's yeah we do i mean it's hard to say what is going to emerge from this i mean we, we see this this drastic reduction in carbon emissions right now and in noise pollution frankly i've been really attuned to how much more quiet the skies are right now um it, but but yeah it's not that 
I, we don't wish this this the coronavirus on anyone. So it's a it's a kind of uh, you know it's a sort of strange environmental ethical paradox I think. But I mean, as to what will come of it, I, yeah, I I think it really depends on how long this plays out, how timid or eager people are to get back in the air, back traveling again. I mean, the bailout, as it's articulated um, or and delineated, certainly suggests that that there will be a kind of bounce back to flight. But I I don't I don't know if I see that happening. Um, it seems like if anything, there will be a there, what's going to be forced is a serious reevaluation of the flight at the scale that we'd we'd sort of achieved and had, had been think we were going to sustain for the next 50 years or whatever. Um, that seems like it's it's going to have to be rethought. Yeah, I, I I agree with that because you know even before this was happening, um, it's a, it's been a long time coming. But I think that environmental activists are we're finally trying to take on the airline industry. Yeah. You know, Greta Thunberg made it such a big part of her, you know, her agenda by, as, as her movement has been building, I think she started to get ready to take on the airline industry. And we all, I think we've only just started talking about how air travel commits such a, such a drastic contribution to global emissions. Um, because we've been talking about the meat industry for a while, we've been talking about the fashion industry, but I think just because air travel provides such a unique social service to us, it's it's a it's a harder conversation to have, obviously. Yeah, and it I, I've been paying attention to how in in some reporting I, I read an article at the BBC the other day that where one of the CEOs of I forget what airline that's a UK based airline was saying it, it's something like um, like it's a moral duty that we have to keep flying. Like, even though they were grounding some flights for now, it was a, it was actually called a moral duty to get back to the skies. And I, I thought, wow. And then just this morning at the Wall Street Journal, I was reading about Trump talking about basically his reticence to, to ground some flights out of particularly hot spots um, around the country. Uh, but he said something like, it's, um, but you don't wanna clamp down because it's a service that's so desperately needed. Um, and and I, I'm just so curious about this, how air travel um, has, has attained this sort of almost like transcendental value where it's like we, we, we do not question it. We need it. Um, and of course, maybe we don't or maybe we don't need it at the, at the scale that we've been experiencing it for some time. Um, and I think that's going to that that question is, seems to me like it's going to become clearer as this as this continues. Yeah, I mean, I think that mobility is one of the things that makes us uniquely human. Um, but as you said, it I don't think that it was ever meant to happen on such a drastic scale as it does now or, you know, as it did or, before the virus. Really or at least not at least not without these kinds of consequences. Right. Whether you're talking about um, climate change and emissions or you're talking about the potential for a virus to spread around the world so quickly, that's what you get. Like that's what you get when this when a species can do can migrate at at that at that speed and at that scale, then that's what you're going to get. I mean, I'm sorry, but how did this person justify it as a moral duty when, as you say, the reason why the pandemic has gotten so out of control is because of how much people were mobilizing around the world and yeah. spreading the disease? 
Well, it's I mean, I think this is even where where Trump is kind of making the case too. Well, you know, it's like we need to move goods and services through flights. And in fact, you saw some some of our um, domestic carriers that were canceling flights were we're sort of saying this was maybe like a week ago, like, but we're still flying important medical equipment around. Like we're still, now we're United issued a, a, a statement about this. Like even though we're not flying passengers, we're, we're flying all this freight and, you know, and, and, and while I'm sure that happened, it, it was almost like a little bit of a bait and switch, like, see, you still need us. You need us to fly these goods and services around. And I think that was the context of the BBC quote was it was about getting things to certain islands where like you can only reach them you know efficiently through air travel um and so therefore we morally need flight to keep going but there's a kind of you know there's a kind of uh i think category mistake there about like Essent, you know, well, now we're calling them like we're differentiating between essential services and non-essential services, which is such a like fantastically ambiguous <laughs> you know, division. Um, but I think that that's where you see the kind of the kind of moral imperative bubble up is that like, well, we, you know, if people need certain things and if we can get them there faster by airplanes, well, then how could you question it? But then, of course, everything else floods in. I'm trying to get this piece you know, picked up this piece about flight. And it's fascinating that people I've sent it to two places right now and, and they seem like hesitant to want to go with it. Cause I think it really is actually quite incendiary to, to just say like, for now we need to stop flight period. Like in our country, people that people seem very shy to like want to get behind that. Yeah. Cause it almost feels, I think, and I don't agree with this, but I think people's instinctual reactions to that is that feels very undemocratic. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Which is, you know, it's just, it's, I guess what's so fascinating to me is that the thing we've always like knew and hated about Trump is that he's this like authoritarian, you know, he, he will do what he wants. And, you know, but he could actually do something that might be good for us all, but he won't because it has all these, comes with all these like economic strings attached, you know, and influence. Right. You know, he, he doesn't want to appear undemocratic in that particular valence but you know <laughs> no, not with the one that impacts the dow jones index right right exactly exactly yeah i mean another consideration and this is obviously not just affecting the airline industry but uh something i've been thinking a lot about is airline workers were at the forefront of of massive layoffs um and just not only were they putting, like people who work at supermarkets or at restaurants, not only were they putting and are putting themselves at risk every single day by interacting with thousands of people, but um, I think that they were the first industry to see massive layoffs. And it just, <laughs> I don't know, it's just, there's not really a question there. It's just something that's really, really on my mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, of course, the, and that's right. I mean, but the, and yet the, the bailouts, as far as I could tell, were mostly about like protecting airlines. But when you look at like airport labor, that's just a lot of contractors, a lot of local, um, you know, entities and groups. And, and, you know, there are a lot of workers who keep the whole enterprise going, who it seems like are going to slip through the cracks here. Um, and yet, as you're saying, they were the ones who were get often like getting infected or being exposed before we even knew that, that you know what was happening here in the in the states i've been writing a lot about um the new orleans airport which i which i wrote about a lot in the anthropocene book but 
you know, I don't know if you read the New York Times article about how, you know, oh, it turns out that Mardi Gras is probably to blame for New Orleans being well, what the Atlantic today is calling like probably the next global epicenter of the pandemic because mm-hmm. of the astronomical rise in, in positive cases there. Um, and people are saying, well, it was because of Mardi Gras. Well, that's that may be true. But actually, even before that, it was because we we opened this new airport last November and had record numbers of travelers in the months before Mardi Gras. And so it seems to me like equally to blame, if you can use the word blame, is the is this new airport that we were so proud of as a city. Um, At the same time, it facilitated all of that influx of that that we now know is, you know, that the virus was moving around. It's probably a little bit of both, as you said. But. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for sure, people were coming to New Orleans because of the because of carnival season. Um, but, you know, but and, and, you know, it's so funny to talk about the virus as if it's not us. Right. It's not it's just, pe- just pe- it's people moving around. It's people moving around, going where they want to go. And the virus is sort of coming along with with people. Um, yeah. Right. And I think what's so upsetting about this particular crisis, what what makes it so different from something like 9-11, for instance, is that when there is a crisis on such a global scale as this, I think it's human instinct to want to be together and to comfort one another. But it's our moral imperative to stay away from each other so that we don't so that we, you know, flatten the curve as I feel like flatten the curve has become part of pretty much everybody's vocabulary at this point, yeah. that we have a moral duty to stay the hell away from one another. And it's so <laughs> counterintuitive to our human instinct. I think that's why this is this feels like we're sitting in this historic moment right now where the world has had a paradigmatic shift in some way. Yeah. We don't have some kind of I mean, obviously, these kinds of pandemics have happened throughout history, but in, in modern memory, I mean, we've never contended with something this severe before. So I just I don't think that people really know how to to grapple with that. You know, the idea that it is it is, as you say, like precisely our fault that this happened on such a drastic scale. Yeah, the solution is so antithetical to human nature that. Yeah. That at some point, I think it is going to become a little unsustainable. And, and, you know, and the way we're responding to it and getting through it, frankly, is through things like Skype and Zoom and all kinds of like social media, you know, bonding and banding together as, as nauseating as some of that stuff can sometimes be when it feels overdone or like the demand, you know, I, I've been kind of amazed at how it feels like, wow, I have like more meeting requests than ever. Than, than I had before this. And it's like, that's, that's annoying. But on the other hand, like, this is how I mean people are trying to connect. And, and interestingly, that's what I, I feel like for many, many years, that one of the biggest threats, sort of, sort of imminent threats to air travel has been our ability to digitally connect instead of flying around the world. And this moment has kind of forced that. And it'll be very interesting to see when, as this sort of dissipates over the next, let's say, 18 months, to two years will people realize like oh you know yeah let's not we don't have to have that conference we we know how to do it virtually and it's okay and there will be enough of a kind of um tilting back to where people can connect in person in their local communities but the but anything that can be done virtually will suddenly seem a lot easier 
and even and even maybe welcome that that's an interesting another wrinkle to like how will air travel come back because in some ways the way we're coping with this now might set up an alternative path forward in terms of travel do you have any ideas of what that might look like well i mean i guess i guess i would hope it would look like something like a re a, a revaluation of on the one hand like local communities so that so that getting together in smaller groups in in the community that you're direct that you're that, that people are in takes on more value and at the same time going long distances when it's when it's not um strictly necessary gets gets devalued a little bit because because we actually know how to use these tools to make that happen in a way that's less um, exa- uh, like, uh, you know, exhausting of, of resources. Um, that's maybe a little bit utopian to think that, 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 that we could just sort of come out of this and be like, oh, now we know how to use these two technologies better. <laughs> that's kind of guess what I'm saying. But maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe we, could, we would actually have that, uh, 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 a new kind of clarity about both of these technologies or both these forms of communication. Yeah. I mean, I think it's okay to be a little utopian. I think, the way that I've at least been comforting myself, right, is that I think about the Great Depression and how the New Deal came out of it. Um, And I think with this situation in particular, it's not like Trump or anybody in his administration can gaslight the virus away. It's not like anything else in his legacy where he just said that a spade wasn't a spade, said that the sky was red and it was fine because, yeah, he could just spin the narrative that he wanted and nobody nobody seemed able to actually be able to counter his yeah. his illusions. But with this pandemic, with people dying on it, a global scale, with our, a third of our workforce predicted to be out of work mm-hmm. because of coronavirus, I mean, there's not much that he can, that he can really cling on to. And I think additionally to that, all these conversations that we're having now about uh, universal health care and paid sick leave and yeah. universal basic income. It's <laughs> ironic that when there is a crisis like this, the solutions to it tend to lean left. I mean, yeah. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody, but something I've on the one hand been thinking about is that what this, what the pandemic has revealed is that we were already living in crisis. Mm-hmm. We, I think America is uniquely vulnerable right now because of the glaring holes in our social safety net. The things, you know, people showing up to airports to work because they're terrified of getting fired. People not right. going to the doctor because they can't afford to. Like the things right. every other developed country in the world has, um, has made it so severe in this country but i'm hoping that we're able to um anchor those ideas into this into this tragedy and and yeah. use it to compel people to realize that um no we we do need a social safety net yeah absolutely i think that's right so i don't want i don't want to keep you for too long but do you, do you have any any last thoughts about how this virus is is going to shape the Anthropocene? Well, I've been thinking about it a lot um, in terms of higher education. Actually, I, I was on a, a, a quite long call with my university president and a handful of other faculty members, and we were sort of talking about, we, it was it was actually a call that had been set up, or a meeting that had been set up a while ago about strategic planning for the university, but now it became a Zoom meeting, and 
we were talking about this draft of a strategic plan that seemed like totally obsolete because we're in a new world. Um, so I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of of how this crisis, I mean, as you said, it, it, it reveals that we had been living through a crisis for some time. And, and as we know, higher education has also been in a kind of crisis state for some time. And so mm-hmm. I've really been thinking a lot about how institutions are going to have to uh, pivot, transform themselves, do new, you know, try new things quickly, especially if they want to attract students who don't even know right now if they're going to be learning on campus or online in the fall or going forward, what that looks like. So, and I mean, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that, that schools with, with good leadership and, and faculty who are, um, you know, willing to think differently about, about teaching and disciplines and, and fields and, contact with students that that some you know some exciting new stuff could come out of this um and 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 you know teaching in ways that's um much more inherently public facing because 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 higher education is not in a bubble it's in a in a world and in an economy that is affected by everything else um so i i'm not i don't know how this is going to play out but i've been i've been thinking a lot about about what different forms that that might take um, specifically for higher ed. I mean, are you thinking something along the lines of open access? Well, actually, I guess I've been thinking more along the lines of of how if we do have universities, um, well, I guess I've been thinking more about how disciplines and colleges and departments are, it may be time for them to rethink them, their, their identities. And the way we talk about like how, how parts of schools get in, get into silos and how they don't talk to one another mm-hmm. and how this kind of creates all kinds of curricular problems for students and retention issues, blah, blah, blah. And it seems to me like this is forcing, this moment is forcing a time where we might have to think about higher education as a much more holistic and integrated practice and some schools i mean more experimental schools have thought along these lines for a long time but um if we have students who are who are coming back to school or starting school and they and and the economic situation is dire or or very bleak we we need i think we need to be um very conscious about about like what are we like, what are we doing with students for four years or, or more? Uh, what are we training them for if we're not training them for a very, like, stable, growing marketplace? Um, it, it it just, and again, these are just kind of like new open questions for me right now. But I've just been thinking that that we're not going to be able to go back in the fall or even this summer and, and, like, expect that we could do things the same way we did before. And you're thinking about preparing them for a, mar- a marketplace? No, no, no. I mean, I mean, there's not like there's not going to be a market. There's not like a clear marketplace out there for them in the way that there right. that we might have thought there was a year ago or even a, a couple months ago. Sure. That there are, there are like clear, you know, job paths. Even if that was already. I mean, again, though, this comes back to your point that like we were already in in crisis in in a, in, in a lot of ways. But but we were pretending like we were you know with the right kind of innovation or with the right STEM curriculum we could like get students trained. And it's like, well, I I don't think it's that. It's even that simple anymore oh I don't think it is either and I think it is precisely the problem I think (laughs) yeah I I don't know a society that fetishizes 
profit and right, social right. mobility is is like is a society that's not going to deal well with a pandemic that requires collective cooperation. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I guess that's just what I've been thinking about. Like, how do we, how are we going to maybe, how are we going to have to rethink higher ed? So that's not about like individuals getting individual degrees and majors and minors, but rather like in a more like collaborative collective sense. I think, I think there's, you know, there's just, there's new possibility here. Hmm. Well, that's a slightly hopeful note to end on. <laughs> so I'm just going to keep it there before it gets too depressing again. But okay, I, okay. Um, I just, yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to to speak to me again. When all of this started happening, I immediately thought about your book, and it almost it almost felt prophetic uh, to be reading it in February and then to have have this happen on such a drastic scale. So um, I really appreciate it. Well, I, I really appreciated your note. It was it was very grounding and, and very pleasant to get that note in the midst of this all and be like, oh, yeah, like like my work is, is out there doing its thing, even though it's not the thing that I thought it might be doing, you know. So, yeah, thank you. 